Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hi, I'm Leslie Larson, and I'm here to read from my novel Slipstream. Unfortunately, the the plot of my novel is very timely right now as it deals with the sort of anxiety we get from being in these uh, situations, airports, where we never know what's going to pop up, what kind of catastrophe might be right around the corner. My novel is set in and around LAX, and it focuses on the lives of five people who, um, though they don't know it, are moving quietly toward a fateful collision, and each is struggling to stay afloat in the face of major setbacks, minor failures, and um, a pursuit of second chances. Um, The particular section I'm going to read concerns a character called Inez. She is the wife of a man who works in the airport. His name is Rudy, and his job is to clean the planes when they come in um, to the airport. Inez has some um, secrets of her own. She is saving money to leave the marriage, where she's very unhappy. And the way she's doing that is by delivering Avon on a bicycle, because her husband won't let her drive a car. So um, this chapter I'm going to read, chapter 7, is Inez as she goes about um, making her deliveries to her customers in L.A., A test. It was only a test. Not a bomb or a missile or an earthquake. Not a tidal wave, as Inez imagined it could have been. A wall of water piling up out in the ocean. A mountainous wave gathering force before it swept into the basin of Los Angeles, where it would wash everything. Parking meters, telephone poles, houses, the plains where Rudy worked, trees and people just like toys like bits of broken wood and plastic all out to sea, like the flood in Noah's Ark. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Just as Inez was thinking that if Clara Rice didn't get there with the Avon soon, she would have to deliver on a different day, the doorbell rang. Inez switched off the TV and ran to the door. Clara was there with the box. The perfume wafted up full of promise. Big order today, Clara said, trying to see around Inez into her house. The sooner she left, the better, in case anyone should see. Not that Rudy ever talked to anyone in the neighborhood, but better safe than sorry. Inez smiled, nodded, took the box. Okay, see you next time, she said, quickly closing the door. She got right to work, laid out her supplies, checked the shipment over, organized the invoices, glanced at the clock. She divided everything up, carefully placed each order in a paper bag. Nail polish, foundation, lip gloss, facial mask, powder blush, eyeshadow, home decorations and jewelry, candles. She added the free gifts to each bag. This month it was a sample-sized lipstick of very cherry and a small vial of spring fling perfume. She stapled the receipts to the outside of the bags, which she placed in the box that Clara had brought. She went into the bathroom and touched up her own makeup, 
tied a scarf over her head, slipped on her loafers, and headed for the garage. Rudy didn't think she should have a car, just like he didn't think she should have a job. A woman's place is in the house. She wasn't sure that was in the Bible either, but there were plenty of other things that were. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as to the Lord. And if that wasn't enough, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But the ultimate authority, higher than Rudy, was God. And if God gave her the plan about Avon, her only choice was to obey. The garage was tiny, crowded with Rudy's things. Tools, model airplanes from when he was a kid, newspapers, boxes whose contents were a mystery. He didn't like her out there. He told her so. His space, he said, where he could have a little privacy. When she started to wonder about him, she stopped her mind, moved on to something else. Vanessa's burgundy mountain bike leaned against the wall near the light switch. Inez used bungee cords to attach the box to the rack over the back tire. She hung her purse on the handlebars, then wheeled the bike around to the side yard and out the gate. The wind was whipping up. Eucalyptus leaves and smashed paper cups tumbled along the road. There was plenty of time. Inez took off. She smelled rain. She pumped up the hill at the end of the street, where a vacant lot sparkled with broken glass, and headed for the neighborhood on the other side of the four-lane road. It was too risky to sail around her own house in case Rudy got wind of it. Wild fennel gave off its licorice smell. The hill was steep, but Inez didn't mess with the gears. Vanessa might notice, and, even though she'd never say anything to Rudy, it was better if she didn't know. That way she wouldn't have to lie, wouldn't have to have it on her conscience. For whomsoever condones a sin also commits it, or something like that. At the top of the hill, at the corner with a dry cleaner and the eight-dollar haircuts, Inez stopped and caught her breath while she waited for a break in the traffic. It was all downhill from here. She liked to go fast, but the bottles on the rack behind her rattled, so she applied the brakes. It was silly how much she loved riding the bike. It brought back the one memory she had of her father, how, as a girl of four, right after he brought her over from the Philippines, she had ridden on the handlebars as her father steered them through streets so different from anything she had known. As she pushed through the intersection and started downhill, she remembered his brown hands on the handlebars and his voice close to her ear, talking in tight words because the cigarette clenched between his teeth. The asphalt passing beneath them, the wind in her face, the handlebars bumping under her hips, his voice blending with the whistling of the wind. Her mother and brothers were supposed to join them in America later, but for a reason she never learned, they didn't. It was all foggy to her, even now. Then her father himself had disappeared, and she went to stay in a series of foster homes until the Melberts adopted her and raised her along with their own three children. The one picture she had of her father, which she kept in the cedar chest under the Avon products, showed him posed next to a bicycle, his hands on the handlebars and a cigarette between his lips, just like her memory of him. The photograph showed the deep creases in his cheeks, the dark hair that sprouted from his head like a bush and fell down over his forehead, hiding his eyes. Her dream, and part of her plan, was to find him, to find her whole family. Ask, and ye shall receive. She knew it would happen, sooner or later. 
The one thing she had that she knew was her name, Santos, so beautiful like a prayer. More than that, it was a clue, a step in the right direction. She repeated it now as she flew downhill, the bike jumping and skidding over the uneven pavement. She dreamed of this at night, riding tirelessly up and down hills, the miles falling away effortlessly as she passed through abandoned towns, seasides, jungles. The Fat family was the first stop. Brenda, the mother's name was, Brenda McNair. It was a corner house with a straggly loquat tree and a cyclone fence. Inez pushed her bike through the gate and knocked. The stink in there. Mercy. Inez couldn't understand it. Like they did their business right there in the living room. That and the smell of grease. Everything they ate must have been fried. Dust and dirt stuck to the coat of grease, so everything was fuzzy. Walls, lamps, tables. All those big white people wallowing around in the tiny living room like a family of elephant seals. Sisters and brothers and their girlfriends and boyfriends and kids and a couple of cousins thrown in. Who knew who they all were? They had a thing for angels. Couldn't get enough of them. Angel candles, angel bells, angel music boxes. Angels sitting on the edges of tables and hanging off walls. You'd think with all those angels, maybe they'd want to clean up a little, dust the furniture and clean the carpet, get rid of that smell. But no. Anyway, it was a good thing, for business at least. This time they'd ordered a pewter angel Christmas ornament and a wind chime dancing with little silver, silver angels. They were impulse buyers, too. You could usually tempt them right on the spot with things they haven't even seen before. Inez knocked louder. One of the twin daughters answered. Both girls were no goods. Something wrong with them. Big girls, old enough to be married, who had dropped out of high school and were working at the Taco Loco up on Cesar Chavez. On the way to being as fat as their mother. Most of the time when she came by, they were side by side on the couch, staring at the TV. Avon, Inez announced, a delivery for your mama. Mom, the girl shouted toward the back of the house, not even saying hello, but looking greedily at the bag Inez held. Inez couldn't help thinking of her own daughter, so polite, so clean, so quiet. This one had dark circles under her eyes, like she did some kind of drug. Pimples she'd picked into scabs, dirty house shoes. Brenda McNair came waddling down the hall. Come in, come in, she yelled, motioning with her big arms. At least she had more manners than her daughter. Inez stepped inside. The other twin came in from the kitchen, the son's girlfriend from behind Brenda, streaming in from everywhere like animals at feeding time, coming for their angels. Inez gave them the order and waited for the oohs and ahs, the gasps and giggles and sighs as they passed around the wind chimes and Christmas ornament. Buy forty dollars and get the free gift on the next order, she said, opening the catalog and pointing to the display of a carrying case, mascara and fade cream. If you buy sixty dollars worth, you get the exclusive premium gift worth thirty-five dollars itself. They crowded around. The smell was getting to her. Pee and sweat and grease. Funny how every one of her houses she visited had its own smell, just like each person had her own personality. 
She could walk into any of her customers' houses with her eyes closed and know where she was. I want this, one of the twins cried, just like a little girl. Mama, buy it for me, the other one pleaded, pushing her way into the circle to get closer to the catalog. Buy it yourself, Brenda said. My God, you think I'm made of money? But she did end up buying them what they wanted. That and plenty else. The peaceful dove ceramic ornament, astringent cleanser, and classic coral powder blush. She bought aftershave splash for her son and pearly pink nail polish and matching tip gloss for his girlfriend. Cellulite control gel, moisturizing hand cream, and, finally, the spice-scented wax diffuser. Inez wondered where the money was coming from, but that wasn't her concern. She wrote the order down in her neat handwriting while the dollar amounts rolled in her head like miles on an odometer. "'Do we have enough for the free gift?' Brenda asked when the frenzy was over. "'The premium gift,' Inez pronounced. Everyone clapped. The next customer, Mrs. Betsky, lived at the end of the same street. It was uphill. Inez stood up on the pedals and pumped hard, squinting into the sun that was trying to pierce the high ceiling of overcast sky. A plane broke through the clouds, and for a moment, until it passed into the dark bank of gray, she thought of Rudy, picturing his small, delicate hands and the fastidious way he cut his meat into uniform pieces before he ate. He might have cleaned that very plane up there now. Even with the noise from the freeway and the wind lashing the rasping fronds of the palms along the parking strip, she heard the roar of the jet's engines. She envied the people up there going somewhere far away. Mrs. Betsky opened the door the minute Inez knocked, like she had been waiting. She wore shorts that showed her skinny noodle legs, big ug ugly sandals with thick men's socks. What a sight. Body lotion was all she ever bought. She took the bag and eyed Inez suspiciously. Her house smelled like menthol rub Inez's foster mother used to massage into her chest when she had a cold. Same thing next month, Mrs. Betsky said. She had an accent like Dracula. What are you? she asked when she handed over the money. Excuse me? What are you? What are you? she repeated impatiently, peering into Inez's face and gesturing with her big-knuckled hands. Inez smiled like she always did when something unpleasant was coming. Chinese! Japanese! Where are you from? Mrs. Betsky scowled, as if Inez were playing stupid on purpose. Love your neighbor as yourself, Inez reminded herself as she took a big breath. For as you do unto them, so do you unto me. From L.A., she answered, pointing down at the porch as if she had been born on that very spot. After that was Carmen Miramonte, whose house smelled like cigarettes. Then Edith Lee, whose son was in a hospital bed in the living room. Mrs. Dilly, who decorated her window sills and tabletops with the Avon bottles she'd been collecting since goodness knew when. And Joan Ragosian with all the cats. No surprise what her house smelled like. Big clumps of fur, too, stuck all over the furniture. The orders rolled in. As she got back on her bike and pedaled past the little park where the neighborhood teenagers slumped around in their hoods and baggy pants, Inez imagined the envelope and the cedar chest growing fatter and fatter. There was nothing like feeling the money pile up. It was getting late, though, and a tingle of fear went through her as she imagined Rudy coming home a little early 
and finding the house empty. But why would he? All the same, she plumped faster, panting a little as she rounded the corner onto the street of one-story stucco duplexes where she'd make her last delivery. She'd have to hurry now to get home before Vanessa. The house where the two girls lived, women, really, was in the middle of the block. She dismounted at the sidewalk and pushed her bike across the unkept lawn. The other one answered, not Celeste, her customer. This girl was big, tall, without a drop of makeup and a thick braid hanging down the middle of her back. Bare feet and bitten-down fingernails. Faded jeans torn across the knees and a T-shirt that belonged in the rag bag. Yes, she said, blinking like she'd just woke up. There was something shifty about her, restless. She fidgeted like a horse, shifting from one leg to the other while she looked Inez up and down. Is your friend home? Inez guessed that was the word for it. Their place was small, a one-bedroom. She'd visited the bathroom on the last visit, had peeked in at the unmade bed, double bed, clothes tossed on the floor and over the chair. No, no, she's not here, the girl said. I have an order for her, Avon. Inez held up the bag. The other one, Celeste, was one of her best customers, always ordering for her big family, sisters, mother, and nieces. A nice girl, and very pretty. Every hair in place with that one. Makeup, nails, and clothes. South American, she had told Inez, but a Jew, too. Inez knew from her name, Levy. I can take that, the other one said, reaching for the bag. She could be pretty, too, if she tried. Very pretty, in fact. Nice eyes, good bone structure. How had she turned out the way she had? An abomination. But it wasn't for Inez to judge. Still, when she thought of Vanessa around people like that, her blood ran cold. It's a big order, Inez said, keeping the bag out of her reach. I need to collect the money. Come in, then. I'll write you a check. Inez followed her into the house. The shades were down. It was a hippie-looking place, the lumpy furniture covered with Indian print bedspreads and something woven hanging on the wall. It smelled of dried flowers and incense. Candles and carved wooden animals covered the coffee table. A brick-and-board bookshelf stood against one wall. The girl led her to a dining table at the end of the room near the kitchen. It was piled with books, newspapers, open mail, and what looked like a half-built dollhouse made of balsa wood. A mess. Hanging on the wall over the table was a sketch of a naked woman leaning back in a chair, right out in the open for everyone to see. How much is it? the girl said, rummaging in her backpack. Seventy-seven, eighty-four. Inez felt exposed standing in the middle of the living room, alone in a house with a girl like that. She didn't want to get too close, although just looking at the girl you would never have guessed. I'll leave the first line blank, and you can fill it out however you want, Celeste's friend said as she made out the check. Her braid fell over her shoulder while she wrote. Inez couldn't help looking around. There were lots of photographs on the bookshelves of babies and kids and relatives. All Celeste's family, from the looks of them, clearly not this white girl's. There was Celeste herself, standing in front of a tree, with her arms around what must be two of her sisters. Here you go. When the girl smiled, her whole face changed. She looked like a child, innocent and happy. 
Inez's heart softened. She couldn't help it. Jewel Wiley, she read on the check. What kind of name was that? Would the check bounce? The girl watched her closely with a half-smile on her face, and for a moment Inez wondered if she should show her the catalog, encourage her to wear a little makeup. There was always hope. People could change, but it was getting late. I'll leave a catalog for Celeste. I'll call her in a week or so to see if there's something she wants to order. I can tell her to call you. No, no, don't call, Inez blurted out before she could catch herself. No bother, she added, forcing a smile. I'll call her. It was early twilight, the saddest time, when Inez got on her bike and headed home, the dying moments of the day when she felt most alone. When she was a girl, she thought that as the sun sunk into the horizon, it rose simultaneously in the place where she had been born, waking her lost family, who would get out of bed, have breakfast, and begin the day without her. Meanwhile, she went home to eat the unfamiliar food of a foster family while she listened, bewildered, to their insider table talk, then went to sleep in a bed that smelled of strangers. Was it possible to be homesick for a place she no longer remembered? But at this time of day she longed for that place, for the humid island air, for the street sounds and smells of a city of millions who looked just like her. Her chest hurt when she took a deep breath. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, she recited as she pumped around the corner and up the hill. A gust of wind blasted grit into her eyes. The foster parents who'd had her right before the Melberts adopted her, a man and woman who looked strangely alike, with protruding foreheads and no chins, had called her the waif. Their kids picked it up, and the name had spread to other kids in the neighborhood. For a whole year she had been known as Waify or Wafer. Everyone was getting off work. The traffic made Inez feel like a leaf whirling in the surging torrent. There had been an accident at the big intersection. A few spent flares, the rim of a headlight, pieces of plastic, and a puddle of broken glass littered the road. The last thing she needed right now was a flat. She stared carefully, remembering the Thanksgiving she'd spent with a family who called her Wafy. They'd gone to her relative's house where there were a lot of people, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, people who'd known one another all their lives. They all, kids and adults alike, eyed her with curiosity, sneaking glances during dinner as if they were surprised she ate just like they did, cutting her turkey and ladling gravy over the mashed potatoes. After the meal, when the kids had gone outside to play, they had circled around her, shouting questions. "'Where are you from? How come you don't say nothing? Hey, can you hear me? Do you understand?' They'd made ape sounds at her scratched under their arms like monkeys. Finally, she had retreated to a corner of the yard with a family dog, a smelly beagle who pushed her head under Inez's hand the minute Inez stopped petting her. The dog had nestled close to her, sighing happily, until one of the kids noticed and alerted the others. "'Hey, watch out!' he shouted. "'She wants to eat your dog! She's making friends with it so she can have it for dinner!' Why had God put her in this place where she always felt like a stranger? Inez wondered as a truck carrying bottled water rumbled by, forcing her to ride within inches of the curb. When was he going to lead her to her true home? My days are like an evening shadow, she mumbled. 
I wither away like grass. Someone honked at her as they sped by, belching a cloud of exhaust. It was hard to understand what you couldn't see, like God's love. But God was everywhere, Inez reminded herself. She glanced from side to side as if trying to find an example of it, something she had overlooked. But all she spotted was a row of orange cones, a TV someone had abandoned at the bus stop, a pigeon with a curled foot. As she got closer to home, guilt took the place of sadness. She was lying, deceiving everyone. Not even a small sin, but one of the commandments. Then came fear. Don't let him be here, she prayed. Please, please, please. She pumped so fast she started to wheeze, her breath tearing her lungs like a sob. Don't let his car be at the curb. Don't let him be standing on the porch waiting. Her calf muscles screamed. The bike jumped and jolted beneath her. She pedaled in a reckless panic on the verge of tears. What had she been thinking? She was late, late, late. His car wasn't there. Relief flooded her. Everything was okay. She'd pulled it off again. She got off her bike and wheeled it toward the garage. Thank you, she prayed as she leaned the bike exactly as it had been before and gathered her things together. Thank you for your blessing. She had doubted for a minute. There had been a hole in her trust of God. Who was she to question his plan? She had asked, and now she was receiving. To subscribe to Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash Writer's Block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 